How many of you like to, when you drive, uh, you count the different political signs for the, the, the opposing candidates to see maybe who has the most support? Anybody, anybody like that? Okay. There's, there's a few of you. Okay. Um, well, I was told, it came to my attention, that uh, some things have been discovered uh, as people have driven around and looked at these signs and been counting up, specifically related to the presidential election, uh, but it was determined that Joe Biden is actually going to come in third place uh, in next month's election, right behind firewood for sale. So <laughs> that, that is, uh, I'll, I'll give, that's credited to Matt Harold. He, he gave that to me. Um, but we are in a very interesting time in our country, a very divided nation. I'm going to throw out some words here, uh, and your mind's going to go to, to one side of this issue or another based on these words, COVID-19, BLM, NFL, President Trump, socialism, abortion, when you heard those terms, and each one of those, you, you immediately picked a side, or immediately thoughts came into your mind about whether you agreed or disagreed or liked or didn't like what those issues were or what that person stood for. And these are just a few issues that are front and center in, in this cultural divide that is really taking place before our eyes. Uh, our nation has gone through a civil war long before any of us were around. So we've been divided as a country before, but in my lifetime, and I'd venture to say in your lifetime, we, we are, we've never been so divided as a country as it seems that we are in this moment. On September 18th, the Philadelphia Inquirer ran an opinion article, and here was the title of it. America is over. Let's just split into different countries. Our country, our nation is, is so divided on so many different things. And if you listen closely, you hear these faint calls for unity in the background, which are quickly just drowned out by the divisive language of social media. But it's in the midst of this divided world that the church is called to be in unity. What, what does that even look like? How, how do we even go about that that's what we're going to talk about this morning, but before we get into our text, I do want to open up again in a word of prayer for our time in the, in the sermon. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that there is a standard of truth. There is a foundation in Jesus Christ that we can plant firmly on and our hearts can rest. Thank you that you are a God who is united and you're calling a people to be united to himself. And so this morning, Lord, I would just ask that uh, I would decrease, that you would increase, that your word would be magnified, uh, and, lift, and Jesus Christ would be lifted up this morning. Challenge our hearts. Uh, Lord, I pray for our kids as they hear from your word and for uh, the teachers and helpers in there, that they would communicate well the gospel to those kids and that, that you would be at work in their heart even at this young age. Lord, just meet with us now. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for our president and his wife, 
uh, as, as they now have the coronavirus. We pray for our senators and our congressmen. Uh, Lord, people at the local level, from our school superintendents uh, to, to our county commissioners and, and reps. And um, Lord, just there's so many different aspects to the leadership in our country. We, we pray for wisdom. We pray for uh, um, just a godly um, actions and mindset from, from them that we, that we would simply uh, be able to continue to, to worship you in freedom, uh, to share the gospel, Lord, with our community, that you would keep this community healthy through the midst of this. That has been the prayer of our hearts, Lord, as a church, that we would be a testimony and a light, uh, even if it means uh, submitting ourselves in ways that sometimes we don't enjoy. Um, but we, we would just ask, we lift our leaders up to you, we lift our community up to you, and that we would be uh, the, the witness that you've called us to be right here in Tioga County, uh, here in 2020. In Jesus' name, amen. So our church covenant expresses our call to unity like this. And, and you guys read it earlier, you recited it earlier here in our service. But here's how it says, we will strive to pursue and pray for the unity of our church in the common bond that we share in Christ. This is what our church covenant is saying. If you're a covenant member this morning, I'm committing to this. And as a church, we are committing to this striving to pursue and pray for the unity of our church. And I want to ask the question this morning, simply, why? Why will we strive to pursue and pray for the unity of our church in the common bond that we share in Jesus Christ? With so many other things vying for our attention, with so many other things on our plate, why does this make the cuts? Why do we want to say, hey, we are going to strive to pursue after the unity of our church? So we're going to ask the fundamental question of why, and I have four reasons, four points under that. But as we talk about the why, we're also going to talk about the what, what unity is, and we will also uncover the how. How do we go about doing this and, and pursuing and striving to pursue this unity in our church? So why will we strive to pursue and pray for the unity of our church in the common bond that we share in Christ? Number one, because we are called as prisoners. In Ephesians chapter 4, here in verse number 1, Paul identifies himself. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. A, the Christian calling is a high calling. Our call is described in chapter 2, and the book of Ephesians is just rich with, with the truths of, of salvation and what God is doing in his plan for the work of the gospel. But, but I just want to focus a little bit here on chapter number 2, and our calling, as it's described in verse number one, we're identified before we come to faith in Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, Paul says there is no spiritual life within us. So we are not just neutral in our spiritual allegiance when we're born. We're actually bent towards sin. We are, as Paul identifies, dead in our trespasses and sins. But he continues. He says in verse number two, in which you once walk following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And then he identifies those who are not 
Christians that, that have not placed their faith in Christ as sons of disobedience. Paul's language is very strong. He says, you're not just neutral in your spiritual walk, but you're actually sons and daughters of disobedience. You are disciples of the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. That's, That's strong language. We don't like to think of ourselves along those lines. Then in verse number three, he says, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature, this is our natural state, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is, this is who we are from birth. Nothing good within us. Then verse number four, maybe two of the most wonderful words in Scripture, but God. But God intervenes in our life who is rich in mercy made us alive, takes us from death to life together with Christ. Verse number six, and raises us up and he seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse number seven, so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jump down to verse number 21, where he talks about he has set us apart that we would grow to be a holy temple in the Lord, that we are God's dwelling place now. So our calling is not merely a calling that we escape hell, but our calling is a calling that we should be holy and blameless before him, that we, that we are fitted together by the righteousness of Christ and the power of the Spirit to be God's temple to be God's dwelling place. This is what he's calling us out to. And so the Christian life is a high calling. Paul here, as he writes to the church in Ephesus, he is currently in prison for his dedication to the gospel. He is experiencing the literal bondage in chains as he writes the words, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Because it may seem to others that he is a prisoner of the Roman Empire. And the Roman emperor himself would view himself as as a god, as deity. But Paul says, I am not a prisoner of Rome. I am a prisoner for the Lord. I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And and being a prisoner, as we think about that, it assumes a, a lordship. If Jesus Christ has set us free from the bondage of sin, if he set you free from the bondage of sin, sin, we owe him our lives. We are now indebted to him. And the picture as Paul writes this, this prisoner language is not this, that God is this angry prison guard and when we step out of line, he, he, he's going to beat us back into submission or that he's somehow holding us against our will. That, that's not the idea of prisoner here. Christians have been called out and they, and they willingly place themselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So when God calls a person to himself, there is a desire to obey and to live in submission to his word as a prisoner of the Lord. What a picture 
I mean, what, what Paul paints here, just in, in a little bit we skim through in chapter number two, this undeserved calling of people who he has raised up to partake in a glorious kingdom with the most glorious of all beings. This is what God has called us to. And if God has called us as his prisoners and we are submitting to his lordship, how, how can we not pursue the unity of our church? How can we not pursue to be unified together? Because we are fellow prisoners under the command of Jesus Christ. One with another. We are marching to his orders, not our own desires. So if if we're going to strive for unity like Paul, we're going to need to have a perspective like Paul that we are prisoners of the Lord. And we are to submit to him in all things even the things we may not like. And and a recognition of our standing before God is going to be necessary as we look at our second reason here. Because if we don't don't understand who we are, yes, yes, we're children of God, we're loved of God, but we are his prisoners, and, and we don't get to set the rules in our life. God sets the rules, and God tells us what is most important and how we ought to live. And so we come with humility following and pursuing after the, oh, the, Jesus Christ as our master. And again, that's, that's important because, number two, why should we be pursuing this? Not only are we prisoners of the Lord, but, but we are instructed how to walk. This is what Paul talks about in verses 2 and 3. God takes the time to instruct God hasn't left us without resources and answers. He he has equipped us for the spiritual life he's called us to. So he's called us to this high calling. And he says, here then is how you ought to live. And the unity of the body, the unity of this local church, is going to flow from the spiritual walks of the individual members of this body. If our way, our, our walk, or our way of living is not in line with our master, then we can't expect unity with one another. If you're not living the way that God has called you to live, like this body is not going to function in unity the way God has called, it, called us to. So Paul is insistent with the Ephesians that they must live as prisoners of the Lord under his instruction How are they instructed to live? Well, his instruction is clear. It's consistent with the way that Jesus himself walked, with the way that Jesus himself lived. So so first off, we understand that Christians aren't called to something that their master has not already done. Jesus has already lived this out. And so then Paul says, you are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We've, we've just discussed some of this, uh, this high calling of the Christian life. So Christianity is more than, than listing your religious affiliation on a form. Yep, I'm a Christian. It, it's, it, it's, it goes beyond, well, this is the religion of my parents. Or this is what I've already always grown up with. We must own our faith, if I could say it like that. Uh, we must make the Christian faith ours. We, 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 we make it ours when we live it out. And so part of our calling here 
If we're going to own our own faith, and it's not just my parents, it's not just the way that I grew up, it's not just what's convenient. If we're called to the Christian walk, we are called to be united as one people of God. And Paul here says, again in verse number one, he says, I urge you to walk. I'm, I'm asking and pleading with you to live in this way. And how does he call us to live? How does he instruct us to live? Well, in verse number two, he begins with humility. Any Christian walk that is worthy of the calling is going to start with humility. The idea here is to live without arrogance, to live in modesty, to live in a way that you decrease and Christ increases. Many of you would know the name John Piper. He, he says it like this, it's living with a low view of self and a high view of Christ. So within the body, view yourself as least important. That's a, that's a hard thing, but here we are. Instruction number one, walk in humility. Instruction number two, not only with humility, but gentleness, gentle behavior in, and gentle attitude. This is contrasting with a harshness, being harsh to one another. Relationships, with, with, um, relationships between believers ought to be gentle, even in disagreements. We're not always going to agree all of the time. I mean, culturally, this has really kind of been lost. You saw this sort of on Tuesday night, if you, want, if you, were, if you wanted to suffer enough to watch through the debates. Uh, there was not much gentleness. And, and that, that's true, though, increasingly amongst churches, amongst fellow believers in Christ. Gentleness should characterize the Christian life. Number three, he says, patience. Well, we could probably skip over this one, right? Nobody struggles with patience. Literally here, Paul says, that this, this word means to, it's an endurance. It means slow to avenge. I, I liked one definition um, it, it said, it's a state of emotional calm in the face of being provoked without complaint or irritation. So, so you've tried humility, you've tried gentleness, but that person keeps pushing your buttons, keeps, keeps pressing, and, and, and Paul says, here's, here's what else needs to characterize your life, patience. We're not instructed to be humble once, we're not told, hey, just, just try gentleness out for a week. See how it goes. But now Paul says, you need to be humble and gentle with all patience. This long-term endurance. That even as you're, as you're submitting yourself and you're seeing yourself as least important in the body, and it may seem like at times people are walking all over you and, and maybe, maybe my voice is not being heard, Paul says, you are to endure in patience. Commit to living that puts others first, long-term. And then he says at the end of verse number two, bearing with one another in love. It's sort of similar to patience here. We have this, this word bear, which means, again, patient, patient to in, patiently enduring. But I want to focus on the next three words there, where he says, with one another. 
You know, in our patient enduring, we're not isolating ourselves. We're not saying, you know what, if there's someone that's bothering me or I'm just disagreeing with that person, I'm just going to avoid them. I'm going to isolate myself. Paul says, you're not ending your relationship with one another. You're not avoiding this relationship. You're actually engaging in this relationship. You are bearing with one another. So friction and confrontation, those are not excuses to withdraw ourselves. But that's our tendency, right? That's mine. I don't know about you. When, when, things, when confrontation and things start getting, like I'm disagreeing with people, I want to withdraw. When the marital friction comes, I have to be intentional about pursuing the, the communication and the relationship with Val. And, and the same is true in, in the church. With a bunch of sinful people in this room, there is going to be friction. And Paul says, you're going to bear with one another. But he doesn't stop there. He says, this patient endurance is going to be marked by love. It's going to be marked by agape. In the midst of all of this, you are seeking the greatest good of other people. You're putting them first in all things. Whether it's less significant issues like like musical styles or wearing a mask, or it's more significant issues like calling out sin in someone's life and confronting them in a loving way. He says, this is all to be characterized by love for one another. It's not about you. It's not about me. Real quick side note here. I, I, I do believe that this this, these things, uh, if they're not cultivated in the home before, before it comes to the church, like it'll never come to the church. If your home is not characterized by these things, uh, we're going to be hard-pressed as a church. So, I mean, kids, you know your parents aren't perfect, and parents, you know your kids aren't perfect. And in the home, let's, if you say, where do I even start with some of this stuff? Well, let's start where we probably experience the most friction in our life within our family setting. I want to read just a few verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and and you probably typically hear these related to marriage, but Paul's writing to the church of Corinth, and here's what he says about love. Think about some of these things, and do they characterize your own life? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Last thing we want to mention here as it relates to instruction. We're instructed to to live in humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, And we're also instructed to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And really, the the CBC covenant that that we looked at earlier, that second bullet point, mimics this phrase. That the word is strive towards unity and be... And and really, the idea here is to be ready to expend energy in pursuit of this. 
And then, you know that tendency that I talked about where we tend, when friction comes, we tend to uh, isolate ourselves or run the other way? We expend energy isolating and moving away from the situation. Paul really flips that idea on its head and he says, take all of that energy that that you would spend in running and avoiding a situation and pour it into maintaining the unity of the body. It's important to to recognize here, we're going to expand on this in the next point, but this unity is a unity of the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural unity that is already present. So Paul doesn't say eager to create unity, but he says you are unified supernaturally through the Spirit of God and you are to maintain this unity. The gospel has brought a spiritual oneness to everyone who believes and embraces this good news and we are to keep it and guard it. So, life instruction is given. And, and what's, what's stood out to me, I'll say it like that, is that these, this list in verses 2 and 3 is not a list of these external things that, that we're called to do, but it's really instruction on the attitude of our hearts. Unity isn't maintained by signing a piece of paper that we agree with this covenant, that, that we're, you know, we're on board here. The unity of the body is, this is, is an internal desire prompted by the Spirit of God through the work of the gospel in our life that's coming from the inside out. These are internal areas of life that, that no one else can see. And, and maybe sometimes it's hard to measure. How do you measure humility? How do you measure love? How do you say, yep, I'm, I'm doing that all the time. But I think these things will begin to reveal themselves in small ways because not I think, I mean, Jesus says the heart will reveal itself. But they'll come out in ways like how we respond to re- decisions that we disagree with within the church body. It's going to come out when we, you know, whatever's whispered behind someone else's back. It's going to come out how we listen to other people. Listening is a huge part of communication. Do I care what they even have to say? Am I speaking words of truth? Am I praying for one another? I think that's where we'll start to see if our life is being characterized by some of these things. We are instructed in these things, though, because there will be times of disagreement. So when we talk about the unity of the body, we're not talking about uniformity. Like everybody's these, these, these uh, coming off the assembly line, the spiritual assembly line, we're all the same. Now there are certain things that fundamentally that we will have to agree with as it relates to the good news of the gospel and, and, and what is foundational to what it means to be a Christian. But there will be times of disagreement God's given us different personalities. He's given us different perspectives. I'm, I'm thankful for that, aren't you? Most of the time. Well, look what he says in verse number 11. And he gave the apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers. So God's, God's not giving us like, like these uniform robots of, of little Christians, 
But he's giving a diversity of gifts to the church body. And, and God's not against diversity in his people. He actually uses the diversity of gifts in our diverse personalities to bring unity. Christian, this morning you are instructed how to live worthy of your high calling. And so the urging here, Paul says, is you need to make every effort to maintain this unity within the body because division will creep in. It's inevitable at some point. Let's, let's move on, though. We, we are not only instructed how to live, but we are then shown where the power to live comes from. In that same verse there, in verse number three, I didn't quite finish what Paul said, we are, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If all we received was instruction, we would be set up for failure. Here's what you do. Now just go out and do it. Muster up the strength to do it. But we have a problem. We have no spiritual strength in ourselves. But what do we just read in chapter 2, verse number 1? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Try and instruct a dead corpse to obey you, and that corpse will not move. There is no life, there is no ability for something dead to respond in obedience. But God, being rich in mercy, makes us alive in Christ And so he says here now, in maybe a slightly different way, uh, in verse number three, you are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Got this prisoner language here, bond. Christians are connected with the bond of peace, which is Jesus Christ himself. And, And It's not just this idea here of peace, but Paul certainly wants us to make the connection that Jesus is our bond of peace. Real quick, just note note through uh, chapter 2, verse number 14, talking about Jesus Christ, for he himself is our peace. Verse number 15, that he might create in himself one new man, united, in place of the two, so making peace. Verse number 17, what did Jesus come and do? He came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. Chapter 6, verse number 15, Paul identifies the gospel as being the gospel of peace. So at the center of this unity is Jesus Christ himself. Paul doesn't say here, look, you need to maintain this unity around vibrant worship or nice facilities or the status quo or you need to maintain this unity around being comfortable. But he says maintain the unity in the bond of peace because it's through the gospel of peace, it's through Jesus Christ himself that we are at peace with God and peace with one another. There is no peace outside of Jesus Christ. That's, it's almost, it's, it's sad. It's sad. It's, I was going to say it's comical, but it's not comical. It's sad because our culture is, is desiring peace, but you rarely ever hear a call for God in the midst of our division. 
There will never be peace without the Prince of Peace. So unity is not maintained by a heavy-handedness. It's not maintained by manipulation. It's not maintained by misused power. Unity is kept as each member, each one of us, is looking to the Prince of Peace. And we submit to His authority. So, to live in this instruction is not going to come from our power from within, but it's going to come from from, from, uh, from the one who has indwelled us as we look to the one who created all things, but yet humbled himself and became a man. It's going to come as we look to the one who, though he could summon a, an army of angels, comes gentle and riding on a donkey. It's going to come as we look to the one who, knowing all things, but yet patiently endured the faithlessness of his disciples. It's going to come as we look to the one who, though he committed no sin, displayed the greatest love of laying down his life for his enemies. And so in pursuit of unity, in in the pursuit of maintaining unity, I should say, let's be reminded that the gospel has brought us near to God and it's the gospel that's going to keep us near. Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, In the 1800s, he wrote this, We want unity in the truth of God through the Spirit of God. Let us seek after, let us live near to Christ. For this is the best way of promoting unity. Divisions in churches never begin with those full of love to the Savior. Where does the power come to maintain the unity? Not when we look at ourselves, but when we look to Jesus Christ. Last here, as we wrap up, we're we're instructed, our identity is given as prisoners of the Lord. We're instructed in how to live. We're told where, uh, where we are to go and who we are to turn to, to live in this instruction. And then the last thing I want to, to us to focus in on of the why, why should we strive to pursue and pray for the unity, is that we are united to the Godhead. This calling is is really an amazing, breathtaking calling that sinful people are now united to God. The unity of CBC is not a a, a short-term unity that's set around a a set of beliefs laid out in in our Constitution. It's not a short-term unity just in this local community. It's that and it's more. We are called to an eternal unity. It's not just this temporal time here on earth. Verses 4 to 6, as was read earlier, Paul uses the word one seven times. And what he's really doing is emphasizing that the unity of the Godhead is the basis of our unity as the church. If God is not unified, then it's little importance if his people are not unified. 
And so, God, so Paul says over and over, there is one body and one spirit and one hope and one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all. God himself is unified as one. I want to look at this idea in, in, in two points here. First of all, I want to look at the unity of the Trinity. Paul identifies three members of the Godhead here in, the, in these verses. We have the Holy Spirit. There is one Spirit. We have one Lord who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's one faith in Jesus and one baptism, this water baptism of Christ. We identify him, ourselves with him in the waters of baptism. And we have one God and Father of all. The God of the Bible is a triune God. One God, three persons. I don't always understand that. I, rarely, I can't quite wrap my mind around what that means. Like, God is one, but he's three persons distinctly. And that's okay. I think I've said this before, but uh, it, it, it is sort of, in a, in a way, it's refreshing that we don't always understand everything about God. Because if we could wrap our minds as finite beings around all that God is, how great would our God really be? But God identifies himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, three, yet one. Each member of the Godhead is distinct, but yet co-equal in every way. And Paul here says, united in purpose. United in plan. In the first three chapters, Paul has already linked each member of the Godhead to our individual salvation. It's, it's through the, the sovereign predestination and election of the Father that he has called people out to be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he sets his spirit as a seal on our, on our lives and marks us for an eternal kingdom calling us out as one people of God, this grand plan of God's, re God's redemption. And so each local church is taking its cue from this picture of unity in the Father, Son, and Spirit. The unity of the Trinity. Why should we be united? Because God is united. But also, why should we be united and concerned with unity Yes, we see, the, we see God being united, but yet we are ourselves as believers united to the Trinity. Each Christian is united to the Godhead. It's not this church that unites us, but we are united to God, and as a result, we are united to one another as members of the household of God. So our unity with one another doesn't start when we join this church or another church. But we join in covenant membership because we say, yes, I, I recognize that as a child of God, that, that I am now united to the Godhead and I'm united to his people, that we are now fellow prisoners together with Jesus Christ. And so I'm confirming my commitment to our God, to my God-given unity. True unity in the local church exists only as true unity to the Godhead exists among the members of the church. 
Let me say that again. True unity in the church, so true unity here at CBC, only exists as true unity in the Godhead exists among the members of the church. In other words, if the members of this church are not believers in Jesus Christ and and professing faith in Christ, there will never be true unity in this church. And this speaks to the importance of guarding the membership of our local church and only admitting those to the membership that believe in the gospel. If we aren't united to God by faith in Jesus Christ, we will not be united as a church. In Paul's day here in the church of Ephesus, they would have understood very well and worshipped in, in different ways the, the various Greek gods. And you're probably familiar with, with some of them, like Zeus, Artemis, who print the god, goddess Diana, But the Greek gods are depicted as these powerful deities who are competing for their plan to be be carried out. So so the Ephesians, as a culture, there's all these different gods and and they're worshiping all these different gods and and, and it's just like these these Greek gods are gods of war and they're, they're competing for their plan to be carried out. And Paul really is striking to the heart of the of the Ephesian culture when he says now that there is one God who is fully united in plan, in purpose, in power, in every way. God the Father is not competing with God the Son. And God the, God the Son is not struggling with the Holy Spirit for power or, or, or hit, getting his way. They are eternally united. And in, in chapter 1, verse number 10, Paul actually writes that the the plan of God through Christ is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So the unity of the church is is greater than the unity experienced just in in, in our earthly uh, world, In in our own country. We love our country. We we want to preserve and see the freedoms that we have preserved. But we are united as Christians to something greater. Something that's going to last far beyond whenever whenever the end and demise of, of the United States, which one day will happen. There is only one kingdom that will stand. But we are united to something that is eternal. Our unity is not in nationalities or languages or constitutions and economic policies. and The list could go on, but we are united as a people from every tribe, tongue, nation under one God, Father, Son, and Spirit into an eternal kingdom. Brothers and sisters in Christ, can I just encourage you that you are united in relationship to the Almighty Creator. You're, you're in relationship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Right now, He has done this for you in your life. This was Jesus' focus as He Himself focused on unity. If you remember in John chapter 17, He says this, Holy Father, keep them in your name, talking about His disciples and, and those that would come as His disciples that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus was passionate about the unity of his people. 
Because Jesus brings peace with God. He brings peace with man for those who believe. And I, and I just want to touch on this just for a moment and, and we'll wrap up. For those who believe. Because for those who do not believe, Jesus will bring division. So in our discussion about, about unity within our church body, we have to understand that true unity is planted firmly on the unshifting ground of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there will be people who want to shift. There will be people that don't want anything to do with the gospel. Or, probably more likely, there will be people that only want part of the gospel. They want to pick and choose the parts that they like. And there will be times that the unity and the common bond of Christ will mean that people leave this church. And the temptation, our temptation as a church, will be to alter the message of the gospel in order to keep, quote-unquote, peace. In order to, to keep ourselves comfortable. In order to not have to deal with friction. Because who doesn't like to be liked? I like to be liked. But Paul here, if I could put some words in his mouth, just from other, his other writings as well, he says, don't alter the message. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one hope. Unity of the church comes through the pure gospel, from preaching it and knowing it and growing in it as we live it out. And holding fast to the true gospel is how others will be eternally united to God. And so if we abandon this gospel for some temporary unity, it may very well be that we do not give others the opportunity to hear. Which is why it is so crucial that we strive to maintain unity in the truth as it's revealed in the scriptures. Why? Why will we commit to striving to pursue and pray for the unity of our church in the common bond that we share in Christ? Well, because we are prisoners of Jesus Christ who are instructed and empowered to live worthy of the, of the unity that we have with the triune God. We are united around the gospel of peace. This doesn't mean everything's always going to be peaceful. But those who share this common bond and desire to lift, the lift high the glory of God will unite around this mission at the expense of our own comforts. Com comforts. We will make ourselves low. We will make Christ increased. And so the unity of the church ought to stand in stark contrast to the division of this world. Our world may, may be increasingly divided, but they, they, they being those who are on the outside of, of, of the, the church that are not believers in Christ ought to be able to look into the American church and into CBC as it relates to us here and see a people that is a united people. Not just around, you know, the, the things in this building, not just around a program, but around Jesus Christ, because that's where our unity comes from. That's where it must always go back to. Let's close in prayer. Father, 
I struggle to, to live in humility. If I'm honest, uh, man, there's been some mornings in particular in my own house that, that this would, that, that would have been the, the, the greatest example of what not, how not to live these things out. There was not gentleness and there was not patience with one another. I'm so thankful though that, that Christ has lived these things out perfectly for us. And that we can come and, and we can repent and turn from our sins over and over and over because, because the blood of Christ cleanses us from every sin. And Father, on, on the surface, I, I, I look at our church and, and, and there is uh, a feeling of, of unity. And I pray that, that that sense of unity actually goes much deeper than, than just our comforts and things are running smoothly. My prayer for our local church is that that we would be united in the common bond that we have in Christ, recognizing that, that we are prisoners of the Lord, that we are united together by faith in Christ, and we are to, to put others first in this local church. And so, Father, give us a resolve to hold fast to the pure gospel and what is true, and yet give us a a gentleness and humility in, in the things of lesser importance that we might strive to pursue the unity of this body in the common bond that we share in Christ so that others would see our unity and that they would desire to be united to the Godhead themselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.